0: On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are going to talk about garbage. There's a survey out with Hamiltonians talking about garbage and recycling. Uh, Apparently, there's some confusion. We'll try and sort out what the confusion is and whether it's warranted kind of confusion. Uh, We're also going to be talking about whether or not, or why it is, I guess, that government never shrinks. John Robson has a great piece in the National Post pointing out that government only ever gets bigger. Why is this? And... We're going to be talking to Bill Vigors, who was the public relations publicist guy who joined Terry Fox's Marathon of Hope in 1980. And of course, the Marathon of Hope ended 40 years ago this week. He was there. He was the guy who helped bring attention to it and really helped to make it into a national story. Uh, We're going to talk to Bill about that, about the 40th anniversary, about a lot of different things. Great discussion. Stick
1: around. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML.
0: The city took a survey recently here in Hamilton asking people about recycling. Which seems to me to be a pretty simple concept. You take food waste and you put it in the green bin. You take junk and you throw it in your garbage or in a garbage bag. And you take your recyclables and you put them in the blue bin. Or if you're very special in the gold bin. Oh, the neighbors who have the gold bin. Oh, aren't they special? Yes. Not exactly sure that I'm feeling as special about their gold binness as they do when they put it out there, shine it all up, make sure their name and street number is on there. Anyway, we'll get back to the gold bin thing later. Anyway, apparently this survey showed the recycling part of the equation. Garbage? Okay. Green bin seems to be recycling. Apparently very complicated. People in Hamilton struggling with the whole recycling idea. They say, well, you know what? I would recycle more. I'd be really on board with the whole recycling concept if it was easier. Well, I didn't think it was that complicated to begin with, but mm, apparently. Uh, Angela Story is the city's director of recycling and waste disposal. She joins me now. Angela, how are you tonight?
2: Scott, I'm great. Thanks. How are you?
0: well, listen, I'm, I'm fine. I'm slightly confused. I didn't take this survey. So, you know, I haven't looked through every question that was there, but Mm -hmm. it leads me to one of two conclusions. Either the recycling is way harder than I thought it was, or we may be a little bit of a group of idiots. I'm not, I'm not sure. Is it really that complicated?
2: Well, I'm definitely going to say it's not the second one, (laughs) but in the survey results, it did correspond To The fact that there have been a lot of changes made in the waste industry in the last few years. So items that were acceptable a couple of years ago, like black plastic takeout containers or styrofoam, uh, like meat trays, those were recyclable a couple of years ago because we had an end market to sell them to but unfortunately when you don't have the ability to sell some of the products that you collect it's better to just keep them out of the blue box because they're going to end up going to landfill anyway
0: all right that was going to be something i was going to ask you is that if why can't we put this stuff in a blue box That, that, that may be the answer then but it just goes to landfill anyway so they have to separate it and they just throw it in the garbage anyway
2: Yes. Anything that doesn't make it through the process down at the materials recycling facility is called residue. So it's residue from the recycling program, and it would end up going to Glambrook Landfill. So instead of paying for it to try to be recycled, it's better if the items that we don't have an end market for just go directly to the landfill by putting them in your black bag.
0: You said that this has changed. So at one time we had an end market for this. What happened to that?
2: Yeah. So I don't know if you'll recall a couple of years ago, actually China just started rejecting recyclable material from the Western world. So when that happened, the markets started to close up.
0: Yeah. And I do remember that if I I recall something about the ships being sent back or being turned Mm -hmm. away with, with all kinds of recycling. Okay. So, so now they won't take it anymore. Do we not have facilities? Do we not have the capacity or is it just there, but it's very expensive or could, could we not find a way to do something with these? Because if China can do it, why couldn't we?
2: Yeah, so with the city of Hamilton, and it's pretty common with other municipalities as well, we have a contractor who process, processes our recycling, and they're also responsible for marketing our recycling. So in our contract, we don't actually have the ability to go out and try to find our own markets. So we have a new contract coming in, which may allow us to do a little bit of that going forward. But up until this point, and again, the recycling program in the world was pretty stable for a long time until the ships got turned away. So it was one of those things that people did a great job at recycling because a lot of items were accepted. And now taking out those items that we see a lot of out there, like black plastic and styrofoam, that's causing a lot more um, residents to put them into their black bag. And, you know, they really wish... That they could be recycled. It's not anything that a resident could do to make it go better. It's just that uh, it's not accepted at this point. So we've always committed um, to if there are end markets available, we will definitely uh, accept them again.
0: And for uh, in in the interest of full disclosure, I, like many others probably listening, have at least once or twice. Had those little tisk tisk stickers put on my blue box telling mm-hmm. me that I'd put something in there that I was not supposed to and please don't do this again. So yes, even though I said that maybe some of us are idiots, I count myself among them, just to be clear. I'm not uh, I'm not pointing fingers, they're, they're pointing yeah. back at me as well. Um, but, but the idea of this, of finding the markets for these, again, I'm, I'm a little confused of why we couldn't do this if they're there. Or are there just not many places that you can, are there not many markets for this? Are there not, there are not many companies no. or contractors that do this stuff?
2: That's right, there's not. So we don't have options there to send those types of materials at this time.
1: You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML.
2: Angela,
0: the the one thing I think that probably drives people nuts, especially those who really feel strongly about the environment then and feel like they don't want to just be chucking stuff styrofoam has to be the one thing that drives everyone insane you get a box of a new computer or a printer or whatever else and there's these giant pieces of styrofoam and what do you do with them
2: yeah so in hamilton styrofoam cannot be picked up curbside but you can take styrofoam to the city's community recycling centers Um, and it's basically packaging styrofoam because packaging styrofoam, like you, you referenced, you know, in a, in an appliance box or if you bought electronics and it came with some, um, tightly, um, put together styrofoam, it's not as likely to burst up into a million little pieces and go flying down the street when you put it in your blue box, for example. So, but meat trays, because of the contamination of the meat, the styrofoam tray itself would never be clean enough um, to be recycled into another product, as well as uh, the littler uh, pieces of styrofoam, like the, peanut, the styrofoam peanuts that might come as packaging. Um, those items, when the styrofoam would go through the recycling process, it ends up getting bailed at the end of the line. And something very small, like either styrofoam that's um, broken up into very small pieces or something that starts small, like a peanut styrofoam, won't even stay in the bale. So you end up having little pieces of styrofoam everywhere. The other the other point with the markets that we were talking about before, recycling is generally um, sold by weight. So when we're looking at styrofoam, it takes a lot for any of it to weigh a substantial amount.
0: Which would make some of the companies that do it, it doesn't make it worth their while.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah, Yeah. we usually see a lot of styrofoam waiting um, in the materials recycling facility in order to get a significant amount that an actual, you know, tractor trailer could come and pick up a load.
0: And and today in Hamilton, is there, I mean, you can drop it off at the recycling center, but I mean, is there anything that can be done with it or does it just, what happens to it?
2: Yeah, we do still send it. It just sits around longer until there's enough of it to go.
0: There, was a, there, there were a couple of things in this survey that I found a little surprising. One of them, I, I, I think probably goes right to the top of the list. The There are still apparently a number of people in the city that say, and, and frankly, I, I'll use the word admit, because I didn't think they'd be wanting to admit this, that they don't recycle at all. I, I'm a little surprised by that in 2020, that people are not even willing to do a little bit of it.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, does that I mean, shock that is, you? It is surprising. But, it, you know, most people responded in the survey saying that they do recycle. And then the ones that don't, we asked the follow-up question, like you've mentioned a couple of times, like, why don't you? And so, you know, the number one answer was it's just too much work, you know, to make that decision in the kitchen before you take it out to the blue boxes, what you need to do with it. Um, some note that you've mentioned, it's just confusing uh, some separated it out into what goes where. Like, I'm just not sure which box it goes into. When you look at a milk carton, somebody might think that that is a paper material and want to put that in their paper's blue box. When in fact, a milk container by nature of what it is lined with goes in the container's blue box, which somebody else might say, but that's just for cans or glass. So some people have, um, you know, have to really think about where the material is going in their blue box. And so some people think that that might be a little bit too tough.
0: I'm not suggesting that it's possible to do this right now, but if things were entirely simple, where anything that you think could be recycled, essentially paper, styrofoam, plastic, if it was that simple, do you think almost everybody would do it?
2: I do. And actually a term that is given to, to that is called wish cycling. So when people are wish cycling, wish, like I'm wishing that it could be
1: recycled,
2: right? Oh, okay. There's there's recycling, things that can actually be recycled. And then there's wish cycling. Some people do put it into one box or another because, you know, they really wish it was made of something that could be recycled. And that could be, you know, a a styrofoam coffee cup or the other styrofoam products that we've been talking about today. Um, Some of the non-stretchy plastics. So if you look at The yogurt containers today are very light and squishy. And so, again, those end up being, you know, crumbled in the recycling process and don't end up being captured. So we love that people are wishing that things can be recycled. It's just if it doesn't make its way to the end of the recycling line, it ends up going in the garbage anyway.
0: You know, when I say would everybody do it uh, in, in a sense, when, when I started doing a radio show a number of years ago, one of the pieces of advice I was given by someone who'd been in the business a long, long time was if ever you have a day where you have nothing to talk about or a guest bails on you, open the phone lines and talk about cats or garbage, because those will always get the phone lines going I mean, talking about garbage seems like it's the least, well, not for you. I mean, it's your job, but the Mm -hmm. least exciting, but everybody, this is something that drives everybody nuts for good or for bad, but it's always something that people are thinking about is what do I do with this stuff and Uh, where's it going?
2: Yeah. And we were talking about, um, some improvements. Right. So it also asked the survey also asked the residents, you know, what improvements would help you to participate in some of the programs that you might not be fully participating in now. And one of the items was education. So I know that a group of people work pretty much 100% of their job on educating about mm-hmm. waste information. Whether it's an annual calendar that goes out, whether it's specific um, tenant guides for apartment buildings, it could be social media ads. It could be your traditional ads like radio and TV and newsprint. But there's still always an audience that we don't reach.
0: And and we got to run. But there is an app. The city does have an app to help explain this stuff.
2: Yes, we absolutely do. So we subscribe to an app called Recycle Coach. And it basically will allow you to put a product into a search box and it will let you know whether it goes into one of our diversion streams or if it ends up in the garbage.
0: There you go. If you, if you're one of the people who still can't quite figure it out, Recycle Coach, go find the app. It's probably, it's at the app store, right Angela? Yep, absolutely. Go to the app store, Recycle Coach, and it'll walk you through it. And then all this trouble and difficulty goes away because your stuff goes in the right box. Angela, really appreciate you taking the time today. Thanks for doing this.
2: Thanks, Scott.
1: Have a great night. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML.
0: There was a piece in the national post today that was, um, you know, it was, it was a, a, something that really made me think it was a column by John Robson, the headline on it, why government only increases in size, why government only increases in size. And, you know, as I, th- I saw the headline, I started reading it and I went, is that true? And then you stop and you think, well, which is the government that has not increased in size? And I'm not even talking about necessarily the number of MPs or MPPs or city councillors. We're not talking about the, the governing people. It's not the number of people governing. It's the government. It's the bureaucracy. It's the number of public servants. Government always seems to expand. John Robson joins us now. John, how are you tonight? Thanks for doing this.
3: I'm just fine. Just had the dog out for a swim and
0: all is well. Excellent. Look, when I read your headline today and then I read the column, um, as I said a moment ago, I started to think he must have it wrong. There, there has to be examples of governments over the last, I don't know, number of years, provincial, federal, municipal, whatever, that have really cut back and cut down on the size of the government. And then I tried to go through the last governments for the last 30 or 40 years. I'm having a hard time finding it.
3: Yeah, and, and you'll occasionally find cases where a government managed to get smaller temporarily by spending less on certain programs. For instance, uh, the and Martin Liberals with transfers to the provinces and Ralph Klein with some spending on things like health care. But they didn't actually get rid of any of the programs or the activities or the responsibilities. And as soon as the restraints eased, they went into hyperspend. I mean, Klein was spending twice as much by the time he left as when he came in. Because they all believe, whether they've thought the matter through very much or not, that there is nothing that government can't do better than anybody else. And so the only reason government doesn't do something is because they haven't yet gotten to it, but they keep getting to new things. And I mean there are there are trivial examples. I remember I think Martin Anderson had the story about trying to get rid of the board of tea tasters. Uh, when he was in the Nixon administration and failing. Uh, but they eventually got rid of it under Ronald Reagan. So after something like 100 years, the Americans got rid of the people who tasted tea on behalf of the federal government. Uh, but that is these are such small examples, and governments are always taking on new things, including out in Alberta, where you know they've got this $24 billion deficit because they weren't willing to cut anything even before the pandemic with the economy in hard times and... Inheriting a fairly substantial deficit. Uh, and now they've got sector strategies. But what? But they John, don't have just but, one sector strategy. You've got a bunch of sector strategies. If Jason Kenny is trying to think of exciting new ways to manipulate the yeah. economy, what hope is there that Justin Trudeau won't be doing it?
0: But John, the thing about it is that so, well, not so many, a number of governments have come into power and been elected on an austerity platform, on a we're going to cut back on the size of government and save money platform. And then once they get into power, they seem to immediately forget that.
3: Yeah, I mean, and and they run pretty confused campaigns because what they say is our opponents are profligate. They're spending way too much. They're careless and lazy. We will come in and we will spend even more money on everything you value, but we will spend less money on the unspecified silly things they're doing. Which we've been, in, you know, we've been in politics, we've been in the legislature eight years. We don't know what they are. Don't ask us that. But you know, we won't raise your taxes, but we will give you money. You know, you want you want healthcare, you'll get healthcare. You want a jobs plan, you'll get a jobs plan. You want handouts to blueberry farmers, we will give you handouts to blueberry farmers. And they get into office, and then they realize that everything's got a constituency, but it's worse than that. They, they never do the Calvin Coolidge thing of saying, we know you want the money, but you just can't have it. And you shouldn't have it. So go away because they, they look at it and they think, yeah, you know what? If we subsidize, you know, aluminum door makers, Canada will become a world leader in aluminum doors. And that's not a fanciful example. That's one of the things that the Harper libertarian conservatives boasted of doing. I kept getting these press releases or, or laminate something manufacturers as though, the private sector could not, of its own accord, figure out whose laminate was well laminated, um, and and I was amazed at the range of things that the Harbor Toys would subsidize. You know, and if somebody was ranching buffalo, they'd run out with a grant for buffalo ranchers because the government knew who were the good buffalo ranchers and they knew what was the right way to ranch buffaloes. I mean, you, you guys don't know which end of a buffalo is the one you shouldn't be in front of, right? But <laughs> but it's just there's nothing. There's nothing. You just go to them and say, what about, you know, the quasin industry? They'd say, we will stimulate innovation in the quasin industry. But that's something Ross Chast made up, right? You don't even know what Quasinfo is, but you're willing to subsidize it. And it's astonishing. Like, this think we can encourage innovation. Do so you look at governments and think, now, there are people who are thinking of effective new ways to do things all the time, but they think they can stimulate innovation in a high-tech industry. Like, they can't even pay their own employees. The Phoenix system is a disaster. But, it, and, but, you know, and sure, government has a momentum and there are vested interests, but the problem
1: is the politicians. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML.
0: John, just before the break, uh, you were about to tell an anecdote from your column, which I go ahead, because I mean, this this I think and I know where you're going. This kind of says it all.
3: Yeah, And as you said, it's not a partisan thing. In fact, you know, if someone says, hey, I'm a socialist, I think government is the best then I think you're wrong, but at least you're wrong in a clear way that we could debate. So it was conservatives, and I got to ask, it was a debate between the party leaders, and Nelson Reese was there in the stand-in for, I guess it was Audrey McLaughlin, and President Manning was there, and Jean Charest was there, and so I stood up and I said, uh, well, yeah, I'd like you to tell me what government is doing, anything government is doing that it shouldn't be doing. You know, I'm not interested in it should be doing differently or maybe the provinces should do it, not the feds or vice versa. I just want you to tell me anything from the huge range of things government does that it just shouldn't be doing. And Manning and Shai were stumped. But Nelson Rees said, well, it shouldn't be handing out money to corporations, which you think would be one thing everybody could agree on because con- conservatives don't like handouts and, you know, leftists don't like corporations. But then the Harper Tories, oh man, did they like corporate handouts? And I even got to ask George Bush this. I was down covering the American primaries back when he was just a former governor of Texas candidate for the Republican nomination so Mira mortals could speak to him. And I said, what's government doing that it shouldn't be doing? And he looked at me and said, that's a really interesting question. I'll have to get back to you. And my joke is he never did. Like, I didn't think he was going to phone me from the White House. But in his presidency, he never vetoed a bill that it was, had too much spending in it. He never said, why is government doing this? Let's not. He never did the Grover Cleveland thing of saying, how about private charity or the Calvin Coolidge thing of saying, yeah, you've got you got problems, better fix them. Um, and it's the conservatives who, who you think believe in free markets. Like you said, they, they seem to run on it. But even if you look closely, those spin doctors and the boys and girls in short pants are making sure they're actually just talking about getting rid of waste as if there hasn't been a 50-year war on waste it hasn't turned up that many paperclips. Philosophically, <laughs> they believe in big government, and that's the crazy thing. They think they're conservatives, but they're wrong because they believe government is the answer to everything. They don't Which- even want to give people choice in healthcare.
0: Which is what, what Ronald Reagan said once upon a time, wasn't it? Where he said, government is not the solution to our problem, government is the problem. And and that's um and it's great to say it, and I think a lot of people, of a lot of political stripes may agree with that, but it doesn't really happen. And here, John, I mean, my theory on this, and you jump in and tell me what yours is, mine is you get into power, and you kind of like the idea of being in power. You like being a person on that side of the bench, and you like to have... A, well, you quickly realize that people also like their stuff. And when you take away their stuff, you lose votes. And, you know, it's it's one thing to give people things. That's nice. But it's really, really dangerous to start taking things away that you've given to people, programs and promises and everything else. And so, you know what? Way easier just to ride it out and say, yeah, that's, that's untouchable now. And away we go. And then if that's the case, if that's how we do it, we never get rid of government or at least shrink government.
3: Yeah, I mean, I, there's no doubt that's true. There's a ratchet effect, and everybody's kind of plundering the Treasury, because if you don't, you still pay the taxes for everybody else's boodle. But I think the big problem is that if people came into office really, truly convinced Alan Reagan, even he didn't, didn't do nearly what I'd hoped he would, if they really came in convinced with things government shouldn't be doing, they could find a lot of regulations to get rid of, and they could find a lot of programs where they'd say, no, it just doesn't make sense to do that. I mean, my Grover Cleveland story, and he was president in the late 19th century, he was a Democrat, and there was a big hoo-ha about drought in Texas, and the newspapers were saying the government should vote them $10,000 in relief. And Cleveland said, no, it's not the job of government to hand out money, believe it or not. But he said, if you think these farmers are in such a tough state, why don't you start raising money from your readers? So the newspapers did. They said, hey, everybody, the farmers in Texas are just beset in the drought. And they raised $100,000. And that was a very different way of thinking about it, of thinking charity is not done well by government. And if we do it, then we take money out of people's pockets and taxes, and we leave them with less to be charitable. But someone in Cleveland really didn't think government was better at relieving misery than the private sector, whereas somebody like Doug Ford does. He thinks he doesn't. But you watch what he does. He says that any welfare program that he is going to get rid of on the theory that the problem is real, but the solution is to have Canadians or Ontarians get together and raise money and fix it without the state. And the answer is no, you will never get him to say that that should be done about anything. He may say we can't afford it, but he will never say, and even if we could, it wouldn't be an appropriate way to tackle the problem.
0: John, we have about 30 seconds here. Let me ask you a hypothetical question, although I I mean, I don't know how hypothetical it is because we've seen it other places in the world. Uh, Governments here in Canada particularly have never really had to make those kind of hard decisions to cut back on government. We haven't lived in a situation like we saw in Greece a few years ago or other places. What would happen in this country if we did, if we ran into a problem where we did have to cut, what would they cut? Who or would they do anything or would they know how to do it?
3: They wouldn't know how to do it. And they tried to monetize and create hyperinflation. But if it were to happen, obviously it would happen because something terrible would happen and that'd be bad. But we would rediscover that back in the old days, Canada could have a small government because the citizens were big and we still are. And I believe that we would rise to the challenge in a way that would surprise us and astonish the politicians.
0: It is, uh, it is a great column. Whether you agree with John or disagree with John, it's a great thing to read and think about. And, you know, it's good to challenge your brain every now and then and think about these kind of things. John Robson, Why Government Only Increases in Size. You can find it at nationalpost.com right now. John, always appreciate having you on. Thanks for doing this today.
1: My pleasure. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML.
0: Let me get to this, uh, this other story, though, that is... Again, it's a sad story. Obviously, it's a sad anniversary, but it ultimately is part of a much bigger, much happier, much uh, legendary Canadian story. Uh, Yesterday, as we mentioned, was the 40th anniversary of the end of the Marathon of Hope. Well, my next guest was a huge part of that. He was a public relations guy. Um, He worked for the Canadian Cancer Society, and shortly after the run started, he was sent out east to meet up with this one-legged cancer survivor who said he was going to run all the way across the country and see if he could help. Well, he did. Um, Yeah, Terry Fox on his own was pretty inspirational, but this guy's work went a long way towards making Terry Fox the household name and the legend and the beloved figure that he became. Uh, His name is Bill Vigors and he joins us now. Bill, thank you so much for doing this today. I really appreciate it.
4: Thank you, Scott. It's um, nice to be in Hamilton. I'm, I'm, I lived in the area for quite a while. Is that right? Yeah, I was the manager of the Chamber of Commerce in Welland um, shortly before joining Terry on the road. Uh, life okay. from one one adventure to another.
0: Well, and the last time that I saw your name mentioned around here, and boy, it's a while now, was you were searching to find the identity of a Burlington guy who was in a picture of Terry playing basketball that showed up in the paper once upon a time.
4: Yes, we did. And and unfortunately, the the young man had passed away. Oh. Uh, So it was, we did find him eventually because we looked for him forever. And uh, it was kind of a sad ending to that story.
0: I was saying to someone today and even yesterday, as we were talking about this being the anniversary, it, it cannot possibly be 40 years, Bill. I mean, it just, it seems unfathomable that it's 40 years ago. Does it seem that way to you or does it seem like it's been immediate?
4: Uh, it's it, every day. It's like yesterday. Um, every day, sometimes something pops in my mind to Terry and the run and uh, the memory's always there. Uh, What I am uh, extremely happy of, and I I, I like what you said there at the beginning, that yesterday was a sad story, but it was really really just the beginning. Um, And that's what Terry asked when he got sick, like immediately, when he was on the gurney out in front of the hospital in Thunder Bay, uh, when he said, if I can't finish it, you guys have to. So it... uh, You know, but at the same time, uh, that's the sadness. But in the other time, when I think about the run, I think about the fun times we had and what a great guy he was and uh, um, how different he was off the road. You know, because I know people think about him as their image of him with that intensity on his face as he's running Um, and the stories about, you know, some of the injuries that he went through. But at the end of the day, he was. Your typical 23-year-old young man, very uh, um, dry sense of humor, full of fun, loved to hang out with kids, uh, was open to everybody. There was no, he had had absolutely no ego. Um, Did you help him get that way?
0: Did you help, when you arrived there, was he already a natural at doing this or as a publicist and a PR guy, did you give him some guidance on how to deal with people?
4: you know um i was more his i don't know i don't know whether if you can call the pr guy because I, very clearly like nobody what the guy that you see on tv there's no different guy there is no he he is the same person that you see in clips and top he's he's uh um he's just a regular guy it's hard to explain you know it, because of what he accomplished, um, you know, he is, he is a hero. He's an incredible Canadian hero that we're all proud of. He was a very, very uncomfortable about that. And, and 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 towards the end of the run was actually kind of concerned that people that lost uh, focus of why he was running, that they're making him a hero and they're forgetting why he did it.
0: Well, I mean, I've wondered about this often when when his name comes up or when we have an anniversary or something. And this is, this is, I mean, I I know you're going to be modest about this. This has a lot to do with you and about getting his story out there and letting people know it, because when he was, I mean, he had to stop in Thunder Bay. That was not that long after he had come into Toronto when things had really exploded, has you ever thought about what would it have been like if he hadn't been, if he hadn't had to stop, and if he'd been able to continue, and what it would have been like as he went through Manitoba and Saskatchewan and into Alberta, and then finally to BC, have you ever visualized what that might have looked not, like? Not,
4: you know, be, to, to be honest with you, I'm disappointed for the people who live there that they actually didn't get a chance to see him in person. But I, I like he didn't like to talk about the end. He didn't, you know, if something transpired, like even going to lunch. You you never drove up the road. You always had to go back, even if it was further to go back to the restaurant, because he never wanted to see what was ahead until he got there. And I don't know. I've heard, he he came to, he came to Earth and he accomplished what right, what he came here for. And, uh, and and you know, I don't know. I don't know how to how to explain that. But uh, even his mom said that. You know. Uh, i don't know i don't know, and i don't want to really go to where hmm. uh, what what was in his mind that's the one thing after forty years i've never pretended that I couldn't think about what he would be doing now and also i 'll go back to your earlier question. Nobody told Terry anything to say he was who like um you could if somebody presented a situation to him, you could go over and talk to him, and like an adult. You could have a conversation with him, but once he had made up his mind, it was a waste of time to talk. Uh, you know, talk. You know, you just couldn't change. You wouldn't change his mind, and he was always right. It was always his run. Um, I helped get the word out, but it was his run, and it was the guys with him, Doug and Daryl. Um, they used to take pictures, and the guy would go get in the picture, and I went, no, no, it's the stories about them, and that's what it really is. It's the story about three crazy kids on the road trying to do something that was impossible.
0: And you know, of course you're right. But also, I mean, I can't imagine there is more, there have been more than a few days since then that somebody hasn't wanted to talk to you about this. I mean, this is, the, the, fair to say this has become part of your legacy too.
4: Um, it, it, it is. It's, it's, you know, there's the lightness side of it. I, I, I do get a great deal of humor than the fact that Robert duvall played me in a movie <laughs> uh, <laughs> like I'm, you know that's insane could be could be worse uh, well i I have to t- tell you funny is quickly that uh, they had me go to dinner with him, and before they they said they'll you know who's playing with you, you're saying and then Robert and you meet him I immediately called my wife and I said, You're never going to believe who played me going to play him said, who? I said, Robert
0: Duvall. And she said, who's that? <laughs> well, see, I love Robert Duvall for a whole different reason. And that is because my last name is Radley. And of course, in To Kill a Mockingbird, he played Boo Radley. So there, Boo there's Radley, your connection yes. too. So, yep, there you, you know, go. so, okay. uh, but no, that's, it could have been a lot worse than that. But no, I mean, you, you are part of this story. And again, you're a modest guy, but it, it's impossible to separate yourself. You, you were a big part. You were there to see all this. There are, there's the three you talk about and you maybe one or two others who saw a lot of it, but I mean, you were there as much as anyone.
4: Do you know, um, I, I'm right now I'm not actually, I live in White Rock, but I'm over in Sydney on the Island. And just before this, I was about a half an hour out by the water and I was, um, somebody had something on some site and it was people talking about Terry and how they felt about him. And, um, and many, many times I've I've questioned why fate, you know, had me be the guy that had the letter to go see what you can do for him, and I kind of think that because of my background, I had, in high school, actually in grade 13, I was working in radio back then, and I was running all the dances in town, not school dances, like pay me dances, and uh, so... I just kind of had this knack. And then to be lucky enough for the two of us to hook up. And then, of course, I was as crazy as him. When I first met him uh, that very first day, after about two hours, there was actually no question in my mind that this guy was going to do it uh, and that he was the real thing. And when you really sit down and think about it, there's a kid running across Canada with one leg and he's running a marathon a day. And I can sit down with him with a map and say, okay, here's where we're going to be, where we're going to be in eight weeks. Um, and, and then just walk away and go, like, it's nothing. Like, it's, you know, it just, I don't know what it was. It was hard to explain. It was like, you know, uh, we became a great team. And I, I fell in love with him very quickly.
0: What do When people do realize who you are and what your background is with it, and I'm sure that many people do, as I say, I'm sure probably most days of your life since then, you've had somebody want to talk to you about it. What, what's the thing you get asked most often? What What's the thing that people want to know the most?
4: Uh, what was he like? They, 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 what, what was he like? Um...
0: Because they probably don't think that he could have been... As perfect as he came across there has to be a dark side you know, to him somewhere
4: do you know I've run into that uh, we actually ran into it in the, in, in the run okay it started in, in the run the that this guy can't possibly be who he is and um, I'm going to stick on that subject before I wander off on something but uh, uh, very early on outside of Ottawa uh, the officer shows up at five o'clock in the morning to do, to do the escort he is not happy to be having to drive at four miles an hour behind (laughs) Terry at five o'clock in the morning. And he's kind of a dick. And uh, anyway, we get in the car and uh, about three miles up, uh, he comes back to me and kind of going, people are trying to give me money and I can't take it. They're trying to give me money through my car window. I can't do that. And I just went, well, roll your window up. About three miles down the road, I noticed he's got his hand outside the uh, car after following Terry for that length of time with his hat doing the collections himself. And then after the run, I've I've been interviewed a couple of times by people who came with a slant, there's got to be something more to the story. Like He can't be that way um, initially. And basically when you sit down and talk about Terry Fox, there is, as I said before, there was no side to him. He had this, he was affected by the kids in the hospital in such a way that uh, he just became completely focused, but like any other teenager, you're completely focused on whatever, you know, somebody gets into something. So he was just like a regular kid that his parents are going, no, you're not going to do it. And he's going, yes, I am going to do it. And the parents are going, no, you don't. And he storms out and slams in the door. How many times has a seventeen-year-old done that? that? This was a, but this was a guy who was going to run across Canada with one leg. Um, ask what people. I'm sorry. Go ahead.
0: No, no. Go ahead. Continue. Sorry. Go ahead.
4: No, I was just going to go on to that. Uh, your question about what do, what do people ask ask about me? Um, initially, when that very first movie came out, they I got a lot of questions about was was he grumpy like that? Because that first movie did present him as kind of grumpy. Uh, mm-hmm. that's, I'm using that as a good term. And, <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. Okay. So what would happen is if you, if you were a bystander and he comes up uh, to, the, to the van and um, suddenly he's yelling at us because we don't have his water and oranges ready for him. And the reason we don't have the oranges and ready for him is, is we've been having a water gun fight. And we didn't notice he was that close. And, of course, he's going to be upset. He's in the middle of running a marathon. That being said, a minute later, he's part of the water gun fight. So uh, you could he, you, people could take things out of context that he was a guy, you know, treating his... Uh, entourage as uh, underlings. It was That's the f- furthest from the truth. But you people have to put in perspective about what he was doing every day.
0: Billy, I mean, again, you, you did publicity, you did PR, whatever you want to call it. I mean, you did a lot of stuff to make sure the message got out. Um, and, and you understand about getting attention for these things and how to, to try and get the news out there imagine, and again, I know these are all hypothetical things, but if he hadn't been doing this in 1980, if he had come along in 2020 and we hadn't had Rick Hansen yet, and we hadn't had Steve Fonio and it was still a first, could this thing work in 2020? Or was it a perfect guy at a perfect moment that
4: allowed this to happen? My first reaction was going to be to say, yeah, it could happen today. My second reaction, as you asked your question, was you're kind of right. Um, there is another side to it. You, you, you've got today's uh, multimedia. And back then, our cell phone was a payphone. Our <laughs> way of communicating with the people standing on the street, waiting for them to come, was radio. Um, radio made the run. I, I, I've got to tell you that. The Toronto Star played a very big role, but uh, CKFM in Toronto, a matter of fact, every radio station and every community we visited that was the only way that we could communicate because every day was not the same we weren't running okay you're going to run six miles and then you're going to take a nap it was like okay he's just ran two miles and he's exhausted and he's got to take a nap so now you've got the line the road lined up with people waiting for terry and there's no you know we can't text people we can't you know so we were accompanied by those radio station promotion cars and bands, and they would broadcast about, okay, Terry's gone for a nap, uh, we're told he's going to be up in a, you know, 45 minutes, so we'll be on such and such a road. So that's how we communicated, and, and initially, that one radio station in Toronto, I think they ended up raising a half a million dollars. And it was just one man who got behind him that then got the people behind him that ran City Hall. So things just seemed to, like, I got the ball rolling, but then the people did it. The communities did it. The volunteers did it. Um,
0: yeah, I also wonder, Bill, if, if and I, I hate to think this would be the reality, but we seem to be a whole lot more cynical and a whole lot more political these days. And, and T- Terry Fox, that I know of, was not a political figure in any way. But, you know, somehow, some comment would end up being taken, and, you know, I, like, I I find it hard to believe that we could replicate that now. And that's sad, I suppose, but I, I just, I, it seems hard to imagine that it could work the
4: same. I, 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 I kind of tend to agree with you. Uh, um, uh, there's so many things going on in the world uh, that they, you know, they're not, the, I guess, the of things like in 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 quebec city like here's the exact opposite i think you know uh, i'm trying to first i'm trying to join terry in quebec and i've showed up in the middle of the day and i know he's roughly in this area and i'm trying to find him so i would pull into a gas station and then sometimes if they spoke english i would be able to say have you seen a guy with one leg run by here (laughs) (laughs) yeah that would stand out i would think and most of them would just go, they thought I, they would think I was joking and I was, I was going dead serious. Uh, but now on the other hand, up in Northern Ontario, one day I'm standing at a gas station, you know, one of those old gas stations back in 1980, you know, the, the guys, I said, you know, this must be quite a sight for you to see a Terry you know, running with one leg. And the guy said, no, I've seen everything. I've seen people leapfrogging across Canada, walking backwards across Canada, a couple of people on pogo sticks, so, I, you know, it's really cool, but I've seen a lot of weird things, but more than that.
0: <laughs> Bill, do you remember, or how well, I guess, cause I'm sure you do. How well do you remember that last day? You personally?
4: I can tell you like a movie, um, from the moment, um, I got to the hospital with mom and dad. Um, I had been in, uh, Welland, I had actually been in St. Thomas for my mom and dad's wedding anniversary and my ex-wife lived in Welland. So I was there and there was going to be a, an argument about the route through Thunder Bay. And so I'd been through so many arguments. I told Doug, I said, listen, just take the bypass. And so I decided anyway, the long, short, short, I end up arriving in Thunder Bay at the, from Toronto at the exact same time that mom and dad are coming in. We drive to the hospital together. Uh, Doug and Daryl are there. Uh, we stand out in the hallway, uh, mom and dad go in, the doctor talks to him then they went into Terry's room and then they brought us in. And, um, once we got over the shock, I went into getting him home. um, dealing with, you know, who was going to fly him home. His lungs were filling up with fluid, and they said if they didn't get him home that day, um, he'd have to stay in Thunder Bay for a week at least. Um, Side story to that, uh, one of our district directors was on the phone with uh, Ontario Health, uh, asking to send a plane to send Terry home, and he's arguing with the lady as who's going to pay for it. And our guy is going, it's not my problem, send us a plane now. And she said, "Well, I don't think we can do that." And he said, "I've got all of Canadian media standing outside my door. Do you want it? want me to tell them that the Ontario government won't send the plane to fly Terry Fox home?" He said, "Could you hold on for a moment?"
3: <laughs>
0: yeah.
4: And, yeah. Back and And then his, uh, he, you know, he tried to go for a sandwich. Uh, he collapsed in the middle of the street. And we got him back into the hospital. Uh, the, tank the plane arrived and it was time to leave. And he did that speech on, on, uh, on the gurney. And then we loaded him in the ambulance and it was, a, in the ambulance was a doctor from Thunder Bay who accompanied him home. Uh, Christy Blatchford, the reporter, myself and mom and dad. And it was pretty, uh, in there, um, and dad was saying to Terry, it's so unfair, it's so unfair, and and uh, the cancer coming back. And Terry said, Dad, no, it's not unfair. I'm no different than anybody else. This is what cancer does. And then he paused for a minute, and he said, maybe now people will remember why I am doing it. And he was wise enough to know that he was going to go home and take chemotherapy and radiation and the nation was going to fight, see him fight this cancer that he was running for.
0: At um, that moment, Bill, did you, did you believe at that moment that he would be coming back and finishing the run or deep down, did you know that was it?
4: Deep down, I knew it was it. Um uh, we we got to the airport, we loaded them on the plane. I stood on the tarmac. I, some days I think I'm still standing on the tarmac.
0: Still difficult, obviously.
4: Yep. But anyway, you know, uh, I had a chance to visit him a couple of times. I was actually the, the night of the telethon, um, in the hospital room, it was Doug and Daryl and Terry and I, and then they wanted Doug and Daryl to go downstairs, so it ended up with just me and him in the room uh, watching, and he was fascinated watching this this telethon, uh, which I had sat in on with CTV. It was like the movies. That's another story into itself, watching them put that together, and uh, um, he had... We had talked on the road about cancer, because even though I worked for the Cancer Society, nobody in my family had ever had cancer. We were Irish, and most of them, it was cirrhosis of the liver, is <laughs> the joke that I use. Um, but I had never had cancer, and so we had talked seriously on the road about, and he said, Bill, if you can imagine the weary, this is the, the, the treatment, because the treatment sometimes worse than the disease it's like having the flu ten, times 10. And uh, so anyway, the, the telethon was uh, playing, and they, and they were all with the drip. And he said, this is what i was talking about. And uh, I sat on the side of his bed while he went to sleep on my shoulder.
1: You're listening to The Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML.
0: Bill, I'm wondering, have, how many times have you been back to that spot just outside Thunder Bay, where the statue is now,
4: I, I've actually only been back there twice, um, and it was both for the, the original monument that went back up, uh, up, and then they widened the highway and they moved it to its present position, which is spectacular, uh, overlooking Lake Superior. And I had planned to um, drive the route this summer. I had the 40th anniversary. I've been planning for two years to fly to Thunder Bay. I, I've driven the rest of the route, you know, a hundred and I can drive down the street and tell you adventures. That's, that's what happened over there. This is what happens over there, which by the way, I want to tell you a story about Hamilton, but, um, I want to tell you the story about Hamilton. I forgot the heck what I was talking about anyway.
0: <laughs> about this. How many times you've been to that spot and you said just twice. Uh, yes
4: for twice. And then this year I was planned for two years to do that trip. And because there was so many memories on that stretch, because once we went north of Sault Ste. Marie, um, and, and actually it changed once we got up front. Once we got up in Muskoka and the crowds became less and less, and then when we turned north at Sault Ste. Marie, and then it was the people driving the highway, but there was no population to line the streets, and it became much more relaxed. There was, And some very emotional things happened along that stretch anyway. Uh, With COVID, that all went out the window. I was supposed to uh, uh, be at a number of different events, but, you know, next year, or I'll do it for the 50th.
0: What about Um, Hamilton? You said you wanted to tell a story about uh, Hamilton.
4: I've always always told this story about there's things on the run, certain things on the run that are particularly burnt into your memory. Um, And it was... First off, the morning that we came in, coming down the lakeshore, it was a beautiful, uh, cool kind of summer morning, um, particularly because I remember the street we came along. Uh, was It's a section of the uh, city of uh, Lakeshore that is lots of trees covering the, the area. And anyway, and I was looking at the map of Hamilton today, and this incident happened. Uh, people... The odd person had come out and said that Terry was pushing himself too hard, uh, that he was going to kill himself, that he should stop the run. But in the pandemonium of the, you know, the traffic and everything going on, and Terry's running and the people on the other side of the road, and he never stopped for anybody. You know, like it's the odd time of somebody like, a, but very, very, very rarely, rarely. And he's coming around the corner, and I was looking at the map. I think it was around Plains Road in Maple or something like that. And you got to imagine what that intersection looked like 40 years ago. As we were coming around the corner, there was a woman in a car screaming at him, stop it, stop it, they're using you, they're using you. And um, as he's running towards them, and he stopped, and he walked over to the car very nicely and looked at the lady and said, they're not using me enough, and turned around and continued running.
1: Hmm.
4: And that was... Um his desire to, to like he wanted to do more he wanted to do as much as he possibly could to get his message out and uh and and started of his way of saying no I'm, this is me, I'm doing it for myself. they're not pushing me matter of fact we were we did exactly the opposite, particularly at the beginning.
0: Bill, it's hard to imagine um, because, you know, certain moments in history sort of, you, you sort of place them in a moment in time. And it's hard to, for when they kind of intersect almost, it's hard to imagine that it was only eight years before this, that was the Summit Series, the Hockey Series, the Team Canada versus Soviet Union Series. It seems like those are worlds apart. Yeah, And the reason I bring that up now is because I, we've reached a point, I think, where there's an awful lot of people who were younger, who were certainly not alive for that. Their parents may not have been alive for that. And when you bring it up now, they kind of go, "Uh, oh, whatever. I mean, we've got Sidney Crosby's goal at the Olympics or we've got Jose Bautista's home run or we got Marie-Philippe Poulin's goal in the Olympics. We have our own things that resonate with us. And, and I got thinking today that I was going to ask you this. Is there any threat, any fear, any worry that that could happen with Terry Fox that as we get further and further away from this that he becomes less relevant to people because they weren't there to see him run? Or do you think that we've, we've passed that hump. We've, we've gotten past that point. He's always going to be Terry Fox the way we thought of
4: him. I can't see it changing. Um, honestly, I, it's, it's long past whatever I expected even 10 years in. Um, to read the love that Canadians have for Terry. And that's what I was saying before, about an hour ago reading comments of people about uh, a Canadian hero and it, it representing Canadian uh, values and, and the re we, re- re- he is who we are. And I think it's a humbleness of Canadians to have that pride in themselves. Um, to have a man who gave him didn't mean to but he gave himself up for the greater greater cause of all, and uh, forty years later with the first option advances in cancer research that he's directly responsible for, um, and the love that people have for him, also the education system, I give massive credit to our teachers who have been able to use Terry. Um, as an example in so many different areas and as a teaching tool in mathematics and geography and, uh, um, but more on sh- giving and sharing and kindness and hard work and integrity um, and chasing your dream and believing in yourself that one person can make a complete difference. And, and the, the teachers, I see it, my niece... Who got to meet him? She's been teaching about Terry, and I go to schools and talk, and I can see the the, the fascination and all the little kids, like even the tiniest ones, about Terry. That that's you know they've just heard about this person and they they're fascinated by him and they're th- three and four years old and believe and I you know I sit on the floor. It's hard to communicate com- uh, communicate with them sometimes, but I just get on the floor and tell st- funny stories about. <laughs> Um, but, um, um, I I,
0: I, I, it's it's, it's hard to imagine that at this point that it would change, but again, you know, you, you, like I hope I, I, all I can say is I really hope that that is the case that when 30 years down the road, that we're still talking about it in the same, you know, really reverent kind of way. Um, about him. Bill, we got to run, unfortunately. Last thing, just before I let you go, because I've wanted to know this. Did you keep anything? Do you have some things or some thing that you kept from the Marathon of Hope as a souvenir?
4: I've given them all away. Everything? Um, Everything. The only thing I have left is the gentleman who did the statue in Thunder Bay. I used to go over to his studio while he was uh, building it uh, about every two or three days and tell him, you know, this, this, and, you know, look and I ended up getting one of the six miniature statues. I had things, and over the years I've given them away to people who maybe possibly had cancer mm. um, or always to somebody that I knew it would make them feel better. Because I got my dream or my memories and, and, and what's inside me. And... uh I I do technically own a shirt and a shoe, but it's in the Sports Hall of Fame, which I've given them, I gave them that for perpetuity.
0: Well, you know what, that's, uh, boy, not that you're going to do it, but I can't even fathom what those would be worth. If those went up for auction, a Terry Fox shirt and shoe from the Marathon of Hope in Canada... Yeah. Wow, I, it's, I mean, it's unfathomable what those things would go for these days when you consider sports memorabilia and what that would mean.
4: Um, Bill, I, I wish we could running, do- I, we're running out of time, and I got to say right now before we hang out, Yeah, we're virtual run this year, September the 20th Yes, yes it's harder than ever. Make COVID your reason to do a virtual run. Get out there even if it's in your driveway.
0: Great point. You can go online. You can find all about the Terry Fox Run. You can do one this year on the fortieth anniversary. Bill, uh, real pleasure to have you on. Thanks so much for taking the time today.
4: Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, and hello, Hamilton area, everybody. Bye
1: bye. The Scott Radley Show weekday evenings from six to eight on nine hundred CHML.